Moon. Hello, hello. I'm Savannah. I'm Alicia. And this is Burden of Proof. Take two. Take two. <laughs> we were approximately 20 minutes into this episode when we realized that we weren't recording. Yes. My bad. Stop. I forgot to double check that after, you know, after you, know. you correct one issue in recording software, sometimes it like resets other things it's domino effects it's so annoying and i forgot to recheck it's all right we're here but here we are we're ready to go it's okay we'll do an even better version yeah you know usually the second time around is better all right so we want to thank and welcome all yes all our listeners thank all of our listeners welcome new listeners because we noticed we we got a bump in listeners this week we did and so welcome welcome we love you guys i hope you love it and if you like what you hear leave us a little review that'd be great yeah either on the podcast platform of your choice or social media. Yeah. Join us on social media. Just let us know how you're feeling. Okay. Let's see. This is a listener requested case. What else did we yes. talk about? We talked about this is a listener requested case from Chris. He listened to our Carly Brucia case and reached out about that case and then mentioned this case that also took place in Sarasota, Florida. Yeah. So thank you, Chris. Got another local case for you this week. Yep. I feel like we talked for longer the first time. And then you talked, you were telling us about how your mom came to the law firm to help out with some extra stuff this week yeah. and was listening to an episode of ours. Yeah, she was listening to Robin Hoyne in her office and I could hear it from my office and it was torture because I never listened back to our episodes Um, because who wants to just listen to themselves talk for an hour? Yeah. Not well, some people maybe. I don't want to, but I, I listen to them yeah, Alicia for editing edits, purposes. Because she's an amazing editor, but I try to avoid it if at all possible. That's okay. You handle social media and marketing and I try to avoid that. Yeah. Well <laughs> <laughs> So it works out. So follow us on TikTok. I did a, a day in the life the other day. Oh recording. We're not recording, but of just like working on Deaths. We are at Burden of Proof Pod on TikTok. We're also the same on everything. So just <laughs> <come> find us <laughs> on the platform of your choosing once again. Yes. So I think that that's pretty much all we covered. Yeah. And then we got yeah. on a tangent about Grey's Anatomy, but we won't do it. We'll spare you. <laughs> yeah. Maybe okay. things happen for a reason. Yeah. Maybe that's why this happened for sure you don't want to listen to us talk about what made us cry in Grey's Anatomy so yeah so there you go all right we're gonna run into it run right into it what do we have this week I know we have a local case yes it is the case of quad mom Sheila Bellish I thought that it was pronounced Belush it is not tis not from all of my resources tis not it is it is (laughs) <laughs> say it because i can't remember how to say it bellish bellish before we get started i want to mention that if you're like me if you remember or have listened to the heather grossman case you're gonna find the similarities between these cases like yeah mind-blowing it's like these guys studied out of the same textbook how to be mm-hmm. a narcissistic sociopath so hold on to your butt because you're going to feel some righteous anger 
I'm ready to be angry. Probably even more so with this case than the Heather Grossman case. Which is hard case. to imagine because Heather Grossman was so, so angering. Not her, but her situation. She's, yeah. she's lovely. I would venture to say this guy is even worse than Ugh. Ronnie Boy from Heather Grossman. Hey, props to you for remembering his name because I did not. It took me a second. There was a pause there, if you noticed. Mm-hmm. It took me a second, but yes. All right. So there's a ton of information to this case and their backgrounds. I am going to do my best to just hit the highlights because I just didn't really want to draw the case out into two yeah, episodes. I've had that where it's like it could be two, but it could also be one and you just have to choose. Yeah. And to draw it out, like you'd have to give a ton of background information. And ultimately, all that's really going to probably do is make us m- even more mad. So I just yeah. did my best to pick out the things that basically like highlight or show just how awful this dude is. So. I trust you. Here we go. If you want more information, though, I have lots of resources. Sources in the doobly-doo. You can definitely check those out. And I'll even mention at least one specifically for specific information if you're interested. So here we go. Sheila Bellish was born October 19th, 1962 in Gulfport, Mississippi. Oh, her birthday just passed. Yes, it did. Family was less than stable. Mm, bummer. Yeah. Sheila's mother, Jean, had two sons from her first marriage. And then Jean and her second husband, Frank, had four daughters together, including Sheila. Unfortunately, one of the daughters died at only 19 days old. Mm. Frank was a military man, an alcoholic who was often absent from family life. So Jean divorced him when Sheila was fairly young. I didn't get an exact age, but she was young. And the family finally found some stability in Jean's third husband, Don Smith. But tragedy disrupted that stability for Sheila when her father, Frank, was killed in Vietnam. And then just a year later, her brother took his own life. And Sheila grew up to be described as soft-spoken, a bit shy, and naive. Okay. At 19 years old, Sheila got a job as a legal secretary for a divorce attorney. Nice. Now, I don't think that that's weird that, obviously, you were 20, 19. Were you still 19 when you started? I was 19 when I started. Yeah, you were 19 when you started. But I found it interesting that... The way she's described as being so sweet and soft-spoken and shy and naive to go into that field, especially, especially family, for family law or law. divorce, because it's so volatile is not quite the right word, but like it can be, it though. can be. And it's, you know, it's not the situation where like we work in elder law and with grief a lot. And so having a comforting or calm disposition is helpful. Yes. But not really in family law because I would I've never worked in family law, but I would imagine you would want your clients to be angry. But I've heard a lot about because I considered going into family yeah, law. Yeah, I also and I considered talked to several it. paralegals and a, even a couple of attorneys that I met throughout my time in school, mm-hmm. and literally 
all of them told me to avoid it. Yeah, it can't be good for your psyche to just see. That's hard, man. And like to be soft spoken in that environment, especially. Well, I don't want to make generalizations, but like I especially if you're working with like men who are being divorcing or being divorced, they're going to walk all over you. Not every. No, obviously not all men, but like. Yeah. And this was back in the like late 70s, early 80s. So most of them for sure. So. Also, she was a legal secretary because paralegals weren't paralegals as we know them today back then. Yeah. So it just I just found it interesting because I thought that's like you're throwing this poor girl to the wolves, man. Yeah, it kind of feels like that. I mean, (laughs) our legal secretary, like our receptionist goes through it sometimes with clients. And we don't work in a very angry type of litigation or anything like that yeah well she really was thrown to a wolf this is where she met alan blackthorne at the time known as alan van hout i believe it's pronounced now you're probably thinking whoa an alias this is bad already and to that i say you have no idea how high (laughs) alan can fly (laughs) I love the office references. Thank you very much. For starters, the 26-year-old Alan was not at said divorce attorney's office working or delivering DoorDash. Which, in case you're wondering, if you see a person in a law office, it is a 50-50 shot that they are either a client or delivering food because we'd be hangry. (laughs) (laughs) We order so much food. (laughs) Yeah. And it's not just because DoorDash didn't exist back then. It was because he was there getting divorced. And though Sheila was under the impression he was divorcing his first wife, I mean, after all, he was only 26 years old, it was actually his second divorce. Wow, batting a thousand, aren't you, buddy? See, Alan convinced Sheila and then her family that he had a lot of experience, that he was a second lieutenant in the army and had already earned his engineering degree from Stanford University. Can, put- I, can I ask the obvious question? Yes. Did anybody ask for a timeline? No. They just believe He they was just, just trusted. A, a charmer, apparently. Listen here, folks. After doing this for a while, they've learned. Always ask for a timeline. Yes. Now, I know I, I mentioned where she was born. She was born in... Mississippi. Mississippi. I almost said Missouri for some reason. Mississippi. At this point, the family had moved to Oregon. Okay. Okay. I don't know what their lives were like, but, you know, Southerners tend to be, especially if they lived in kind of a smaller area or community. Yeah, they're very trusting. They're going to be more trusting in general. They're going to be like, why would a dude lie about that? Yeah. Especially back then. Yeah, because there's no Google. Yes. I, I, I say this, like, I say that they're trusting, but, like, I we're nosy, us Southerners. We're going to Google you. But obviously, yeah, but there was no you're Google. not Googling that. So there's no fact checking. You and just have to, you kind of have to trust a person. Yeah, back then you did. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when, <laughs> you know. Yeah, you, you did. You just had to trust. Can you imagine how scary... Th- like, knowing what we know now, how scary 
it dating dating would actually be like if you could travel back in time and you had to like try and date you'd be like what no i saw somebody talking on the on i think it was a tiktok and she was like i was in a bar and this guy started talking to me and then he just like got my number from somebody else and called me psycho and like that's how people used to do it all the time and like now i'm like yeah he asked somebody else for your that's weird he should have just like found your instagram or something and liked your instagram story and that's him shooting a shot don't come like ask a friend for your number to call you and it's just weird how like customs and stuff like that Mm -hmm. change so much because and i'm somewhere in between where i'm like no if you want my number ask me for it don't look me up on social media. Don't ask my friend for my number. Ask me. And I don't really me. care. But I haven't, I haven't really, I've never I mean, dated as an adult. I've, my yeah. fiance and I have been together since we were, I was, 16 I was just going to say, I so. say that like that's actually, I mean, I dated before my husband, obviously, but that, but yeah, I actually didn't date a lot of strangers. I only date, tried like going out a couple times with people. Yeah. That, I like met someplace most of the time if I dated people it was like a friend of a friend or something or I was like set up kind of um yeah because I I was not very trusting even before Google Google was around when I was well yeah but 20 something you didn't have a little computer in your pocket no I did not so anyway you had to go to the library to look up the guy (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and see that he didn't go to Stanford. And like, that's, you know, yeah. that's that's weird. Back then, she would have had to like contact Stanford. Yeah, she'd like, have to call have and say. <laughs> and like, I would do that because I'm psycho. <laughs> but that's because I work in law and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to figure it out. Same. I want a trail of facts. I, yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is a tangent, but it's a good tangent, I yeah. think. It's very yeah. important to me that you guys ask your Ask people in your life for timeline because, (laughs) and then fact check the timeline. Yes. Agreed. Well, I'm sure you won't be surprised to learn that most of what Alan told Sheila and her family was a lie. What? Now, I'm not really going to get into the details of what Alan really did with his life or what his life was like because we would be here, this would be have to be like a whole season of episodes but you can definitely read about it in uh one of the sources in our show notes and rules book every breath you take and i'll be watching you i'll be be watching you (laughs) so i am going to share that alan was reportedly the spitting image of his father and he also followed in his father's footsteps by carrying on multiple abusive marriages and having multiple children, though only acknowledging some of them. It's a cycle, baby. Yes. His proclivity for violence and sexual kinks were, of course, kept from Sheila until later. First, he had to take full advantage of her family, convincing her stepfather, Don, to go into business with him. And by the time Sheila's family would realize it was a grave error, the business had gone under bankrupting them. And Alan said, that's okay, you deal with that. And he took off. He whisked pregnant Sheila and their firstborn child, Stevie, away to Hawaii. 
He's going to go pretend to be Elvis <laughs> while they're dealing with his crap. Yes. And at that point, Sheila had, of course, seen some of Alan's ugly side. But as so many abuse victims do in that position, she kind of cut ties with her family. And she moved away thinking, I need to make my marriage work. But maybe if Sheila had known the whole truth about Alan, she wouldn't have chosen to do that. Unfortunately, she had no way of knowing the truth about his past, and her teenage sister had kept quiet about the time that he attempted to rape her and then played it off as a joke. That's, I mean, that's just, it reminds me so much of um, Paula Bernardo. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, it's heartbreaking. Yes. I really do wonder if Sheila would have chosen differently if she had known about her sister, because that's the sister that she was closest yeah. to. Well, and it's hard because he, when you're in that sort of abusive, narcissistic abuse relationship where you're so isolated, yeah, maybe having that could have helped. But at the same time, the sister's also being abused into silence. And it's just mm-hmm. it's a heartbreaking situation all around. Well, Sheila would quickly learn just how dangerous Alan could be once they were away from her family because that's when he really started to show his true colors. Alan's brothers and father joined them in Hawaii for his next business venture, which, if I remember correctly, it had something to do with medical technology or something. Okay. And it ended in scandal, and Alan got arrested. Okay. But once he was free to, to go about his life, he took off once again with Sheila, their daughters, and their nanny in tow and headed to Texas. And the nanny. Mm-hmm. So he's doing well in these business ventures because they have a full-time nanny. Mm, yeah. I mean, he definitely made money. I mean, scamming, not business ventures. But. Yes. <laughs> so once in Texas, Alan changed their last name to Blackthorn claiming that he found out his father was actually a man by that last name. Not the guy that you act just like and look just like. Mm-hmm. That you left in Hawaii. Some rando. Yeah. But Sheila knew he was lying. He was really just trying to distance himself from all the fraud he had committed in yeah. Hawaii. And while I wish I could tell you that Sheila no longer endured Alan's abuse once they divorced in 1988... I think you would know that I was lying. Yeah, because you said it reminded you of Heather Grossman. Yeah, and this is true crime. We wouldn't be doing this if they just got divorced and everything was fine. Yeah, that too. By the time they got divorced, Alan was worth quite a lot of money. And as you'd expect from a guy like Alan, he used his resources and power to fight Sheila every step of the way. Now, though he didn't contest the divorce itself, Alan's obsession with control played out for years as he would violate the child support order, forcing Sheila to go back to court, and then he would countersue her for custody. Of course. I mean, it's just they fight tooth and nail. Yes. They went back and forth like that for years. The court almost always ruled in Sheila's favor, except when Alan would manipulate the system. He would file petitions claiming he was destitute, make sure Sheila wasn't informed of the court date, so when she didn't show, 
the court would rule in his favor, ceasing his payments. Sheila would eventually find out and have to file petitions for the child support to be reinstated, which it would then be. Hey, I, I it just it just so angering. Just want to grab him and shake him. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, Alan got out of paying hundreds of thousands owed to Sheila. The games he played in court only calmed down when Sheila found out that he had began sexually abusing their eldest daughter, Stevie. <sighs> Still, it did not stop entirely. And to save Stevie from having to testify, Sheila never took it to court. Sheila never. Mm-hmm. She was like, I don't want to have to put Stevie through that. In August of 1992, Sheila met Jamie Bellish. Jamie was a church-going ex-Marine turned pharmaceutical rep that adored Sheila and offered stability. They married the following year despite Alan doing all he could to put a damper on their wedding and ruin their honeymoon. Stupid Alan. Which, you're probably like, how how would he ruin yeah, their honeymoon? I was going to ask, mm-hmm. but I'm scared. If I remember, I don't. I didn't put it in my notes, but if I remember correctly... He basically filed another suit in court and and scheduled it Mm -hmm. so that she would have to be there and go to court the day that they were supposed to leave for their honeymoon. Or like right in the middle of the honeymoon or something. So rude. So they couldn't go because she had to be in court. Ugh. Suck my toe. Here's the hilarious part. Alan himself remarried in 1994. Why are you so angry, dude? You're supposed to be in love. He married a woman named Maureen. Again, with the names. I look these up. Just call her Maureen. Maureen. Wine heist. Wine heist. Wait, wine. Yeah, it's an interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Your face while trying to say the name is the funny part. Uh, so Maureen was a successful executive and came from a wealthy family, giving Alan a way to hide assets. Mm, money laundering. Mm, yes. Well, that's not really technically, technically but, but you know what I'm saying. White collar crime. Yay. Yeah. I mean, I think that part of it, it's tec- technically might be allowed because he's just hiding the money. He's now married and it's her assets too. I don't know. I don't know the details on that exactly. But yeah, it might be legal, but it doesn't mean morally it's Right. Ethically illegal. Yeah. Common law illegal. So Sheila and Jamie decided to try for children together. They did have some problems conceiving, and they ended up doing fertility treatments. And in December of 1995, they had their set of quadruplets. One, two, three, four. Three boys. Frankie, Joey, and Timmy, and one girl, Courtney. Aww. Four little babies. Yes. That's a lot of diapers. Oh, God, that's so many diapers. I have twins. I have twins, and that was a lot of diapers. Some of our best friends just had their first baby, and we bought them diapers. They're gone. I don't know if they're gone or not. He's only a week and a half old, but... (laughs) They're gone. No. (laughs) (laughs) Though it was a joyous time... It was also a strenuous time for the blended family. Sheila's older daughters, Stevie and Daryl, were in their preteen era, 
and were rebelling. In their preteen era. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and go off my notes for a second. If you're wondering why they named their two daughters Stevie and Daryl. Oh, I oh, oh, I thought Daryl was a boy. Okay, why? No, they- they're both girls. He told Sheila, I want to name them Stevie and Daryl after Stevie Nicks and Daryl Hannah, that, the singer Stevie Nicks, actress Daryl mm-hmm. Hannah. It was actually uncovered at some point that... No, he wanted to name his daughters names that could pass as boy names because he was already doing things under their identity. Ah, that's horrible. Or he had plans to do things under their social security numbers and identity. Yeah. Just another little gross side note about him. That's horrendous. Well, by 1997... A neighbor whom Daryl confided in whenever she was upset with Sheila and Jamie called the police and Alan after Daryl claimed that Sheila had threatened to spank her. Okay. I don't really know what to say about that. I feel like I feel like I wonder if that's like just being misreported because that's like a really weird thing to call the police about. Or wonder if, if maybe she had heard other things before and this was just like the last straw. For the time period, to me, it was weird. Like, if I heard that somebody called, you know, the cops and whatever on that today, I would think, like, yep, that, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. For back then. That's what I'm saying. It wasn't that unusual for people to still be spanking their children. And the only unusual part to me is that she was older. She wasn't a little, little kid. And, like, you should be able to reason with this kid because she's a preteen. Daryl, like, in 1997, Stevie was 13. Daryl, I think, was at least 10 or 11. I think there was only, like, two or three years between them. So, to me, that's the only unusual part about it. It's entirely possible that the details kind of got lost in translation and my resources and that Daryl didn't just say, oh, she threatened to spank me. She may have said she threatened to hit me, you know, or something. Or other stuff has happened in the past that she's been told about. And this was just the thing that did it. You know what I'm saying? That's kind of what I mean. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, it would eventually come out that Jamie in particular followed the classic Christian philosophy of spare the rod, spoil the child. Now, no matter one's feelings on spanking, I think most of us here understand why that method isn't going to work on children who have already been abused by their father. Mm -hmm. Because even though I haven't gone into it, he wasn't just sexually abusive. Like, he was abusive, period. In any case, after an investigation, the family was ordered to counseling with fur- without further action. So they clearly didn't find anything to be so wrong yeah. that they needed to take the children away. However, Alan took this as an opportunity to hit back and began telling anyone and everyone that Sheila and Jamie were abusing his daughters. Oh, yeah, because you know he's going to use that till till it dies. Yes. He then threatened Sheila with another custody lawsuit, and Sheila had had enough. So she informed him that she was going to countersue bringing the sexual abuse allegations this time 
with Stevie's testimony, if necessary, but definitely the testimony of Stevie's counselor, Mm -hmm. who Sheila had taken her to after finding all of that out. Well, to everyone's surprise, Alan not only dropped the suit, but he relinquished his parental rights entirely. Somebody is scared. Yep. So, with no longer being legally bound to keeping Stevie and Daryl in Texas, Jamie and Sheila decided to make a fresh start by moving to Sarasota, Florida. They wanted to join the circus. <laughs> I'm being serious. It's a circus town. Yes. I'm for not anybody just, who doesn't know. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's not, I'm not just saying like, oh, they ran away during the circus. Like, no, like our town was founded by the circus. Like, yes. They were, our, most of we our town is owned by the circus. Like, the Ringling Museum. And kids that are like in school, they don't always just play soccer. Some of them go yeah. to circus or trapeze practice. Like, yeah, one of my kids wanted to do that for a while and then realized we are not an athletic no, bunch. I was say, which, which <laughs> child thought that that would be a good idea? I was like, um, you, I'm gonna take some time and think about yeah. that. We are not an athletic bunch. So, within months of settling into their new life, on November 7th, 1997. Stevie arrived home after school to a grisly scene. Oh no, I hate when I hate when people find bodies. Especially 13-year-olds yeah. finding their mother. Oh, yeah. Well, I didn't want to say it cuz I don't want to admit that that's the reality here. Brace yourself. She immediately noticed the quadruplets just shy of 2 years old at that point were disheveled, fussy, and covered in what looked like red paint. Oh, my gosh. I need a second. Yeah. <laughs> um, she entered the kitchen to find Sheila lying on the floor with blood everywhere. She then realized her, that her baby siblings were covered in their mother's blood, and they had tracked it all over the house. She ran to her parents' bedroom to call 911 and, through a shaky voice, told the dispatcher that her mom was dead. First responders arrived to find Stevie standing next to Sheila's body and four very distraught yet physically unharmed toddlers. I have goosebumps everywhere. I feel I'm about to cry. I know. That's why I keep taking a moment. On the kitchen floor lay the knife used to cut Sheila's throat that matched the set hanging on a magnetic rack nearby. Investigators found a towel in the garage with gunpowder residue on it and a hole through it as if it had been used as a makeshift silencer. They also found a casing on top of the clothes dryer and a bullet hole in the wall nearby. Dusting did reveal a single fingerprint on the dryer. The autopsy showed that Sheila did have a bullet hole through her head, as well as the cuts across her throat. Though Jamie Bellish was visibly shaken by the news of Sheila's murder, detectives were shocked by his response when they told him they would need to talk to him once he's ready. Mm -hmm. He immediately asked if he would need an attorney. I don't know if that's that weird. It's, It's hard. And they realized why it made sense yeah. once they, obviously, once they found out more information. Yeah, because he's really just thinking, like, 
well one he's i think he's a marine an ex-marine he's a pharmaceutical rep like he's the business guy like he knows he's very logical logical pragmatic and he knows i'm gonna get into that but he knows who it was he knows why this happened and he knows that that person has lots of money and lots of power and is going to potentially make it look like yeah, he's exactly. the one that did it. I mean, he doesn't say that. That's my, I mean, want to make it clear that that's my speculation is that like he probably was very much afraid that this was done to try and make it look like, oh, yeah. the, you know, like classic true crime. Oh, the, husband the husband did, did it. it, you know. No, the ex-husband did it. We exactly. all know it the ex-husband. Well, quickly, all fingers pointed to Alan Blackthorne. Yeah, I mean, if it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck, it's Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even even Stevie, even their yeah. daughter told police right away, it had to be my dad. So there you go. <laughs> like, if his own daughter is saying it, yeah, you should probably look into him. But what was particularly interesting to detectives as they interviewed Jamie was that he informed them that despite Alan giving up custody and rights to their girls, Sheila had been awarded 20% of Alan's multi-million dollar business and over $150,000 for damages in their final court settlement. Okay. For I assume the divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, Jamie claimed that as soon as Sheila attempted to collect on what was owed to her, Alan filed for bankruptcy. Oh, convenient. Now, once detectives confirmed Jamie had been an hour away in Fort Myers for work that day, they turned their sights on Alan. When the detective spoke with Alan on the phone, Alan told him he had seen the story in the news, but the detective took note that Alan seemed rather nonchalant about it all, not even expressing concern for Stevie and Daryl. Not once did he say, where are my daughters? Are they okay? Because he doesn't care. Like, And he knows they're not hurt. <laughs> because he was there. Well, was he? Yes. Yes, he was. Despite the detective being disturbed by Alan's demeanor, they were able to confirm his alibi that he had been playing golf in Texas all day. Remember, dude's rich. He doesn't need to physically go there and do it himself. Oh, I see. I see what you're saying. Meanwhile, those news stories had phone calls rolling into the Sarasota Sheriff's Department. As with most cases, the majority of calls were were irrelevant, but they did get a call from a gas station attendant who told them that the day of Sheila's murder, a man dressed in camouflage stopped into the station asking for directions to the road that the Bellishes lived on. Like, he didn't say the the, the road that the Bellishes... It was, I think, Markridge Road. Now she's like, "Uh, where is that? I must know where that is. I, I'm looking. I it think up. it's in the B Ridge area. I, the gas station was on B Ridge. No, it's in Gulf Gate. Oh. Oh, that's near where I live. 
Yeah. That's so sad. She gave them a description of a young man, possibly Italian or Hispanic, and said she still had the map she had given him to look at if they wanted it. Conveniently, the map had been laminated, making dusting for fingerprints easy peasy. Nice. Sure enough, they lifted a print that matched the one taken from the clothes dryer. Next, they get a call from a lawn service worker who had seen a suspicious man outside the Bellish's home. The worker had never seen the guy before and felt uneasy, so he made up a rhyme to remember the guy's license plate number. Interesting. Detectives found nothing when they ran the number as a Florida tag, but knowing the Bellishes had just moved from Texas, they ran it there as well and found a match. The license number belonged to a Maria del Toro of La Prior, Texas, a woman okay. in her 60s. Interesting. So detectives flew to Texas and spoke with Maria, who told them that the car is registered to her, but it's actually her grandson who drives it regularly. Bingo, bingo. We have a winner, ladies and gents. Jose del Toro, better known as Joey, Hadn't been around, though, and Maria didn't know exactly where he was. In hiding. Detectives were a bit surprised to learn that Joey was not a hardened criminal. He was a well-liked high school football star that maybe partied a little too much, but he wasn't what they expected yeah. at all. Nevertheless, they were able to match Joey Del Toro's prints to the ones on the map and at the crime scene. I'm assuming he had some kind of record, but it wasn't yeah. anything serious. Um, and he was only 21. Mm. He was young. So they tracked Joey to his girlfriend's apartment in Austin, or so they thought. They found his car, but the girlfriend was alone in the apartment. She cooperated and let them look around and detectives searched a duffel bag that he had left behind and towed the car to the forensics lab in Austin. Inside the bag were the camouflage clothes matching the description given by the gas station attendant. Inside the car, investigators found receipts for his purchase of the camo and boots, a map and directions to Florida, and the gun, which was a Colt forty-five. Now, the question on every detective's mind, though, was why? What was his connection to Sheila? The girlfriend didn't seem to know, but pointed him in the direction of Joey's cousin, Sammy Gonzalez, saying that they were very close. Mm -hmm. Detectives took Sammy in for an interview, expecting to find out where Joey was, but Sammy had a whole lot more to say. Okay. Sammy rolled. Sammy was like, let me tell you. The floodgates have in of information have opened. It turned out that Sammy was involved in a conspiracy that he initially claimed was only supposed to end with Sheila being beat up. He said a friend of his, Danny Roca, had asked him if he knew anybody that would beat her up for some money. And Sammy referred him to Joey and in the summer of 1997, they got together to discuss the plan. 
according to him, that's when Danny Roca changed it up, implying that if they wanted more money, as much as $10,000, he would need to kill her. Sammy also cooperated by telling them that Joey had called him unexpectedly and let him know that he knew the cops were asking about him, so he was taking a bus to Mexico. Okay. Unfortunately, this presented a huge roadblock in the investigation because the U.S. authorities were forced to deal with the legal extradition process. Yep. Meanwhile, though, they continued to build the case against all the co-conspirators. When they looked into Danny Roca to find what connection, if any, he had to Sheila Bellish, they found out that he was a member of the same country club as her ex-husband, Alan Blackthorne. There's... There's the connection right there. Digging a little deeper, they discovered that Danny was one of Alan's regular golf buddies at the club. And in fact, he was the person uh-huh. Alan was playing golf with the day that Sheila was murdered. So that's how they confirmed that he was playing golf. When I say buddy, I use the term rather loosely. Because they discovered that Danny really only played golf for money, betting on the games. So much so that he had made around $300,000 from Alan alone in one year. Alan must be really terrible at golf. Well. Or at least very predictable. It's possibly more complicated than that. See, though, Danny thought he was working Alan on the golf course. It was actually Alan who may have been working Danny. Interesting. Okay. Later in the investigation, they found out Alan had spent a lot of time convincing Danny that he was going to invest in developing a new golf course in the area and that he wanted Danny to run it, which he didn't actually have any plans to do. Yeah, he's a con artist. (laughs) And when detectives approached Danny for questioning, he immediately lawyered up and did not want to cooperate. So they made the decision to go to Alan Blackthorne's home to talk with him. Okay. Maureen, Alan's wife, let the detectives in and proceeded to call Alan on the phone, letting him know that they were there. Hey, honey. There are some people here to talk to you. You would think, right? That's terrifying. But the detectives say it was really weird because she just literally picked up the phone, dialed, and said, we have company. And and he knew exactly what was happening. Terrifying. That's like uh, straight out of the movie. Yeah. She hung up the phone, and just a few moments later, the phone rang. She answered and then handed the phone to detectives saying... It's Alan's lawyer on the phone. He'd like to speak with you. You can't see, but I'm just like passive aggressively nodding my head. Like, of course it is. The attorney asked if they had any warrants on Alan, to which they did not. So he said Alan would not be permitted to speak with them at any time without his presence. And just then, Alan walked in the room. You can't talk with me, but here I am. Yeah. Nanny, nanny, boo, boo. Yeah, exactly. Ugh. Of course, Alan did not cooperate at that point, so detectives were forced to work through the process of dealing with multiple suspects through their lawyers, 
which was okay, but it definitely slowed things down. Mm-hmm. And they knew they needed Danny Roca's testimony to nail Allen as the mastermind. It was not going to happen otherwise because, you know, yeah. how do you prove that when the dude's been so careful to just have those golf course conversations? Mm-hmm. Once they felt they had enough evidence on Danny Roca and Sammy Gonzalez, they arrested them both. Sammy once again cooperated fairly quickly and agreed to plead guilty to conspiracy to commit first-degree murder and give testimony against Danny Roca and Joey Del Toro in exchange for a lesser sentence of 15 to 20 years. Okay. I think that's fair considering it's conspiracy. Yeah. He just like made an introduction. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of surprised that that's that he got that much. Yeah. Danny Roca once again refused to cooperate unless prosecutors agreed to give him immunity. I won't do it. You can't make me go to jail. Wah, wah, wah. Well, they said no. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, you're not going to get immunity. No. So they offered no deal, and he took the bet pleading not guilty to two counts. The first count was to principal to premeditated murder and principal to burglary with murder, meaning he was a person who helped commit that crime. The second count was conspiracy to commit premeditated murder. His defense was essentially that he could not be responsible for Joey Del Toro taking it upon himself to kill her when he was only supposed to beat her up. (laughs) I don't believe you. With Sammy's testimony that Danny told Joey, quote, the easiest way to get your money is to shoot her. Danny lost his bet that he would win and not get life in prison he was found guilty on both counts and was sentenced to life in prison for count one the principal to premeditated murder and sentenced to 13.3 years to run consecutively for count two of conspiracy there are some complications with that which we'll get into when we talk appeals but Danny, of course, realized how foolish it was that he was sitting in prison for life while Alan Blackthorne was out there living his lavish life, all because he got greedy and expected immunity. Mm-hmm. You were part of a crime. You're not going to get, and they have enough evidence yeah. to convict these other people. Them like, offering you a plea deal at all was, was the, gen- well, like, that was just to keep them from having to spend money to go to trial. They could have taken it to trial. Yeah. And they did, and they won. So, after some time, he decided he would cooperate and testify against Allen. It was taking time to build the case against Allen, though, and one of the things that slowed it down was a conflict over how to prosecute. Okay. Texas state prosecutors wanted to be the ones to bring the case against Allen, but there was an issue with one of their procedural rules. Okay, I'm confused as to why they think that they are the ones that have venue. Because technically, he he committed the crime of of conspiracy in Texas. The conspiracy things, like Sammy Gonzalez was prosecuted in Texas because the conspiracy took place there. Jurisdiction is so stupid. (laughs) Well, 
there was an issue with one of their procedural rules. It's what they refer to as the accomplice witness rule, which, according to Richard Durbin, an assistant U.S. district attorney for Texas, it says, quote, a person cannot be found guilty based on the uncorroborated testimony of a witness who participated in the crime. Yeah, okay. So you can't be in cahoots with each other and then turn on each other, and it, there has to be other evidence of it. And they, Yeah, I mean, I, I understand why that rule is in place. Yes. Because of this, the case was passed to Richard and his co-counsel, John Murphy, in the U.S. Attorney's Office, and they found a loophole mm-hmm. through the federal courts. The Violence Against Women Act. How you ask? In the words of the great Elise Myers, great question. I'd love to tell you. <laughs> um, well, one of the sections of the act states that it is illegal for a spouse or former spouse to travel in interstate commerce to cause harm to their partner or former partner. Now, <laughs> okay. I love the interstate commerce business. It's, it's part of what helps. People get busted for sex trafficking and everything. I I love it. It's a fantastic loophole. It really is. Thanks to Joey Del Toro using his cell phone the entire trip, allowing them to map out the exact route he took and proving he went to Florida, murdered Sheila, and drove right back to Texas. So, side note, if you're going to commit a crime across state lines, use a regular map, not your phone. Uh, he wasn't, this was before, he didn't have a map. Remember, he had to stop someone place and ask. Because this is in 1997. He was yeah. calling. He was making phone calls. I'm saying for now, though. But, well, yeah. I mean, but let's not help people commit crimes. Well, okay. <laughs> Let them be stupid, Savannah. It's okay. Well, oh, yeah. Use your phone. Keep it on all the time. You know what? Live stream. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, do that. So they filed charges against Allen for causing another person to travel in interstate commerce to commit murder for hire. All right. That's how they did it. That's fascinating. I love it. Allen's trial didn't take place until June of 2000 in San Antonio. The prosecution laid the foundation of their case with the 911 call, photo evidence, and forensic expert testimony. And then they called Stevie, who had just turned 16, to the stand. Oh, my gosh, the poor thing. Even though what was an extremely emotional testimony of his own daughter, Alan was aloof. Stupid, stupid, stupid man. He got nothing. Just nothing. He looks scary. He does. He does. If you're listening right now, it's on our Instagram. Go look. Yeah, he's got, like, those dead eyes that just, he looks a little evil. Next up to testify was Danny Roca, who made it a point to state that he had nothing to lose or gain by being there. That was, like, the very first thing out of his mouth. He says, I'm in jail. He didn't. He was testifying completely on his own. He got no deal. They didn't, like, say, oh, well, now you testify. Well, like, you can get out early. No, he just 
he wasn't getting anything. I mean, maybe revenge <laughs> for the fact that he didn't want to be in prison. Maybe, or maybe he just wanted to, to do the right thing. Yes. And do right by Sheila, maybe. I'm just saying, if I were on the jury, I would be a lot more inclined to believe a person in his shoes versus a person who just got a plea deal. I so, agree. I mean, I would believe them if they were believable and everything sounded, you know, like plausible. But I I just feel like it brings a whole nother level of. Yeah, I, I think being on a jury must be a really fascinating position to be in, especially in a case like this. And I kind of hate that I don't think we'll ever get the opportunity. Obviously, it's a very rare thing to be able to do. But I think that both of us would just be immediately asked to Guilty. leave no. because they'd be like, what do you do for work? And we're like, well, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Do you like and we just have so many opinions because we're so close to crime all the time that like I don't think there's anybody in a million years oh, yeah. who's going to let us stay on a jury. Yeah. And uh, I think that's probably pretty smart of them. Yeah. No, I got very close and I was excluded. I remember this. Yes. Yeah. I won't go into it. We don't have time for that. But yes, it is very fascinating to hear people's jury stories. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and don't skip out on jury duty. Yeah, like, go. A little PSA. I know it's like a pain in the butt and it's inconvenient and all of that stuff. But like it's so needed, you know. We, I, I don't want to talk about how I feel about juries because like I have opinions. But it, yes, don't skip but jury duty. But the system duty. is what it is right now. Yeah, exactly. And, Okay. Anyway, moving on. So um, Danny went on to testify that Alan had talked to him about various payouts depending on the outcome. The amount of money Alan was willing to pay went up exponentially as well as his expectations. Initially, Danny just agreed to have someone beat up Sheila for a small amount of money. Then it turned into murder for $10,000 to each of the conspirators. And by the end of it, it turned into an offer of another 50000 if they get the job done and don't get caught so he can regain custody of his daughters. The following... Uh, okay. Yeah. I, I have... Okay, moving on. Yeah. The following day, when the trial resumed, the defense team shocked everyone by announcing that Alan was going to take the stand. I knew you were going to say that. I knew that was going to happen. He's just He's just too selfish to not do that. Yeah. He testified about how much he loves his daughters. Oh, really? You love them enough? Oh. And of course, he had nothing to do with Sheila's death. But it didn't take much for the prosecution to corner him. They asked about how much he had seen his daughters since Sheila's death. He said, not at all. They asked if he'd sent them any letters, cards, gifts of any kind for any reason. He said he'd had no contact at all. Oh, yeah, you love them so much. Their mom was just brutally killed and you don't care. Mm -hmm. They emphasized the point by detailing how wealthy he was and that he was known to drop up to $20,000 in one day playing golf, but he had not a dime to send to his daughters he supposedly cared about and wanted back. He is rich, rich. They asked if he hated Sheila, to which he responded, no, I didn't hate Sheila. I hated the things she did. Buddy, that's you. Yeah, you, oh, you, you do hate her. So that was kind of the nail in the coffin. But the jury did take some time to deliberate. 
Meanwhile, if my sources are correct, it was like happening literally at the same time. Detectives in Sarasota get the call that Joey Del Toro's extradition was finally happening. Whoop, we're getting him back. As soon as they had Joey in their custody, they questioned him and he told them, quote, the words that I received were that it would be better if she were dead, better for Blackthorne, and it would be better for quote, you, meaning him, because you will get more money. Plus, he'll give you $10,000 when he receives his children. Yeah, I mean, and $10,000 is nothing if he's dropping 20 playing golf. Yeah. So but- I had the thought earlier, like, these are cheap hitmen. <laughs> like- oh, yeah. J- Joey Del Toro was only paid, like, the initial payment mm-hmm. was like $3,500. Yeah. And like that's hitmen cost so much more than that on the dark web. Mm-hmm. Not saying that that's uh, like the wait, end all how be do you all. Know I've seen YouTube videos. Okay. I am not on the dark web. I don't even. Oh, well, I do know how you. I went down a rabbit hole once. Okay. About the dark web. Because it just is interesting to me. I don't understand it. I don't. I don't want to know. I like to. Uh, yeah, but anyway, they're a lot more money than that. And so every time we have one of these cases where it's like murder for hire, I'm like, you're not hiring a real hitman. Real hitman. <laughs> a real hitman costs hundreds of thousands of dollars and they would never get caught. Yeah. But like, who's but, saying that? Nobody. I'm just getting this off the internet. I don't but your frugality real. got you caught <laughs> yeah, yeah. by hiring a, a generic knockoff. <laughs> knockoff hitman. I don't know if any of that's real. I just... <laughs> It was on the internet. How could it not be? Yeah, but I am, I'm sorry. <laughs> a, I'm never going to kill somebody. And B, if I was, it would cost a lot more than tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah. Well, Joey confessed that he broke into the home, watched Sheila and the quadruplets for a bit as they swam in the pool to see if she was really the terrible person and mother that Alan had portrayed her as. I love swimming in pools. He's <laughs> I do. I do. <laughs> so random. No, it's not. I, I resonate with her. I love swimming in pools. I'm like a little fish. He said that she was great with her kids. So he was about to leave when she caught him. Oh, that's he, horrible. He claimed that he would have just left if she had not seen him. But because she did, he, quote, had to do it. You didn't, friend, but... You didn't. She didn't know who he was. And either you know way, what? you, you got, got caught. Look, you would have just gotten caught for breaking and entering, and look that's how, it. And look standing. how easy this is. Look how easy this is. Oops, wrong house. Walk out. <laughs> sorry. Wrong <laughs> house. Oh, sorry. Oh, this isn't the, the Douglases. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm looking for this. Oh, no. No. Oh, okay. Oh, so sorry. Yeah, that's true. I'm here, I'm here to fix a water heater in yeah. camo. Like... <laughs> camo and boots <laughs> but like seriously oops rock house like leave you don't have it's just horrible i'm just if i don't laugh i will ball i'm really sorry yeah like, it's this no. is such a horrible case it is it's like that statement when i listened to that part of his questioning that statement killed me because mm. i'm like what are you talking about you had to do it at that point like you never had to do it ever How is getting caught for breaking and entering and standing, watching, being creepy, watching a family worse than murder? Like, it's not. And why would you think you're going to get away with it at that point? Because you're you're not doing it as a 
you know, a real hitman who's steady and calmly making these decisions. Now you're panicking like, oh, shit, I'm going to get caught. So you're going to fuck up. And you did. I don't know. To me, it's crazy. But there we are. Now, back at the courthouse, the jury at Allen's trial deliberated for 33 hours before finding him guilty on all counts. And he was sentenced to two life sentences. Yeah, this is one of those cases, like, it's not like he can be guilty on one count and not the other. So you have to debate both and every aspect of both. And those charges that you read were complicated. And I can see how it would take somebody who's not good with law. I can take somebody who is comfortable with legalese and stuff. I I can see why it took him that long. Yeah. So in a grand finale of our story... At only 21 years old, Joey Del Toro took a plea deal for a sentence of life in prison to avoid what I assume to avoid the death penalty because he yeah. would have been tried here in Florida. I mean, Florida or Texas, you're up for that <laughs> at that point in time, I think. I think so. Mm-hmm. Still might be. I don't know about Texas law. You might still. Is Texas still a death penalty state? Uh, I'm not sure. Keep talking. I always do old cases. I'm a Google it. <laughs> So, per the deals they made with prosecutors, Sammy Gonzalez served 19 years before he was released, and Joey Del Toro got the life sentence. She's giving me a thumbs up. I'm assuming Texas. It was actually reinstated in 1976. Yes. In Texas. And now they lead the nation in number of executions. Yeah, that sounds about right. They don't just have the death penalty. They (laughs) love the death penalty. That sounds about right. That's why I was like, I'm pretty sure it would have happened either place. Yeah. I'll never forget, though, every time we talk about the death penalty in Florida, I always remember the Ted Bundy movie with um, Zac Efron. Mm -hmm. The prosecutor comes into his cell and he's like, you're going to fry. You're in Florida now, boy. (laughs) And it's like just iconic. I mean, death penalty opinions aside, that line. Yeah. (laughs) Chef's kiss. So... Danny Roca and Alan Blackthorne both filed appeals, of course. If you recall, I mentioned there were some complications with Danny's verdict and sentencing. Mm-hmm. Sentencing. Well, the jury found him guilty on count two of a lesser charge of conspiracy to commit third degree murder instead of the premeditated murder. Okay. okay? The trial court then did what seems to me some kind of uncommon legal gymnastics. (laughs) (laughs) They are Simone Biles of law. They used a Florida procedural rule to amend count two, thereby changing it to conspiracy to commit aggravated battery. Okay. So the appeal seems to involve a lot of legal theory about it not actually being the lesser offense to conspiracy to commit premeditated murder thereby the jury did not actually find him guilty of conspiracy of battery i don't know i'll be honest this was truly confusing the hell out of me and yeah i just kind of feel like because we're not attorneys anybody in the legal field like there may be other paralegals out there listening and if they have more experience than us they're probably thinking like you're an idiot so i was like (laughs) i'm not going into it and then anybody else that's not in the legal field and doesn't know is gonna be even more yeah. confused than I am. So what's the point in getting into all of that? Also, if they have to try that hard, 
<laughs> to get an appeal yeah maybe and really they're just appealing on count two like he yeah. got he got the life sentence for count one it was just the 13.3 years for count two so because well, life is only 25 years or 20 to 25 years in yeah. most states so yeah. you would have still gotten out theoretically yeah um so the biggest issue with it i believe was when they applied it the sentencing I see. Because basically, according to his appeal in 2013 to the Florida Supreme Court, quote, the sentencing guidelines erroneously included 120 victim injury points, which allowed the sentence to exceed the statutory maximum of five years for a third degree felony. So because the jury had found him guilty for the lesser offense that was a third degree felony, but then they did the gymnastics and came to the aggravated battery, in which case they're talking about all these, you know, victim injury points. Like, he ended up getting a, a longer sentence than he would have had they just yeah. said, okay, it's a third degree felony, you yeah. get five years. Okay, basically is the gist of it. And if you're still confused, that's okay, because so am I. Yeah. Um, another major issue brought up in his appeal was ineffective counsel. Now, they always they always say this, though. Yes. But in this case, when it comes to the appeals, it's true in this case. OK. OK, because Danny, well, just kind of joking. Danny must not have won enough money from Alan or he spent it all because mm -hmm. he used a public defender. OK. OK. And whether the outcome would have been the same or not in his trial, based on what I was taught as a paralegal, they definitely made some missteps with him as their client, predominantly involving a lack of communication. So they failed to communicate with him at all about his initial appeal. They filed it. But they did not notify him about the outcome of it until eight years after it had been denied. Whoa. Whoa. So he's just sitting in jail thinking. Yes. That it's still up. Oh, my gosh. Yes. The appellate court granted his motion to correct the sentencing on count two. And at a resentencing hearing in July of 2015, the state court <laughs> resentenced him to 13.4 months instead of years on count two. And the life sentence for count one remained intact. It appears that subsequent appeals were filed regarding that resentencing, and it was all a very long and drawn-out process, but ultimately his life sentence withstood, and his final attempt that I could find to change it took place in 2019, and from what I can tell, it, basically, he suddenly motioned for a retrial due to, quote, new information, claiming that if Joey Del Toro testified again with said information, he could potentially be acquitted. But hmm. then the day came for the hearing and, like, just in front of the judge to determine, yeah. okay, do you get a retrial or not? And... They had transported Joey Del Toro from Miami to Sarasota to testify in front of the judge. And then at the last moment, suddenly Danny Roca and his attorney withdrew the motion. Hmm. 
And the judge was pissed. I was going to say, do you know which judge it was? I don't recall. But the judge was pissed because they're like, uh, we spent taxpayer money to, to get this here. guy up from Miami. Mm-hmm. And now you do this. You're wasting our time and money. And the prosecutor on the case said that they believed he realized things were not going to go his way after all. And so he just withdrew. Yeah. Because, I mean, um, a retrial could end worse. Exactly. Um, Danny and Joey are both still serving their life sentences. So it's been close to 25 years, and he's still, he's still in prison. Now on to the big fish. Alan Blackthorne almost didn't make it very long in his life prison sentence. Ooh. In 2001, he was stabbed by a gang of other inmates. But he survived and subsequently had to be separated from the general population until he could be transferred to another prison. Him being, well, Alan Blackthorne, he appealed all the way up the ladder quite efficiently, I might add. Hmm. I suppose it happens that way when you're using the top attorneys and don't have to wait eight years to hear what the decisions are. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, for time's sake, I'm going to skip all the my constitutional rights were yeah. violated because the trial court allowed evidence that I'm an abusive asshole stuff and instead just say at least one of his appeals was based on, quote, that new information from the testimony of Joey Del Toro in a separate civil case. Okay. But the appellate courts all said no Sick. and they affirmed his conviction. Alan went on to serve his two life sentences, but not for long. He died in 2014 at the age of 59 in a federal prison in Indiana. And the cause of death was never released from what I could find. Hmm. Interesting. Yes. That could mean a lot of things. Yes. And I have to say that... I was a little bit stalkerish, and I did try and look up uh, the quadruplets and Stevie and yeah. Daryl, and I did find some of them, and they seem to be doing well, like well, that's on good. social media and stuff. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure that I found some of them mm-hmm. anyway. I mean, I I don't know 100 percent for sure that it was them, but it seemed like a couple of the quadruplets, like they look almost just like they did as babies. So, oh yeah, yeah. So I'm pretty sure it was them, and they seem to be doing well, and I was happy to see that. But yeah, it's a crazy case. That's horrible. That's a horrible case. I hate you for bringing this up. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's okay. But it's over now. Yeah. <laughs> well, and... I'm gonna go drive down Margaret Street and um. Just be, oh, don't do that if it's a horrible case. I just want to be like, I'm sorry, Sheila. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Sheila. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I had to take deep breaths during the, yeah. the actual crime part and then just keep moving. Well, keep pushing through. If you made it all the way to the end of the episode, leave us a little alligator emoji for, for Florida, for South for Florida. Florida. <laughs> As this is a local case for us. Um, leave us a little alligator emoji. Yeah. That and that works. way we know you made it and you'll be in for a Sunday shout out. Sounds good. Thanks everybody for listening. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Till next time. Bye. Bye.
Thanks for listening, guys. Find us on Instagram and TikTok at Burden of Proof Pod and email us at burdenofproofpod at gmail.com.